Letter 8 It is a sin to blaspheme in the good Lord's face. But after what the Zogs did, the good Lord got an earful from me. I was only trying to be polite, offering my bow relief in his needy moment. It's enough to give a girl a rage when she gets flipped onto the pavement like a fag end. But the worst of it is, all she'd done was try and be nice. Not only was I wronged, the night he turfed me onto the street, it was howling and wet out. There was nowhere to scurry. It was a sideways storm that soaked everything through. In my fury, all I'd done was pace about and plot. What I learned was that relations with blokes is a nightmare no bint with half a brain should need to have. I told this and the rest to our Lord and Maker. I says to him, all biblic and sodden to the bone, why should it be thus, O Lord? You must be having a laugh. It couldn't be more hilarious if you was doing it on purpose just to spite all the girls on the planet. The next day, I went back to Bloomsbury for a wash. Mr. Zoggers was out. I knew he would be. I used my spare key to let me in. I cooked myself a plate of bacon and eggs. My laptop was still available for thieving, so I had that, along with some other bits and pieces of value, which I squeezed into the Louis Vuitton travel case from under the king-size bed. And blessed be the Lord if there weren't a thick wadge of cash I didn't know nothing about. Not until I trashed the Zog's luxury accommodation for the hell of it. You mustn't tell this to no one. If you do, I will deny everything. I will say you tried to rape me. But smack my gob if a hidden horde of fifties and twenties didn't come flying out of Danny Zogger's sofa while I slashed it with a kitchen knife. There was nearly two grand for the having. Which only goes to show how every so often the high and mighty can have his soft spot for a poor defenseless girl. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, even if she was wronged, Marley was smitten. After all, we're talking about Zoggers the Greek. Marley wouldn't do anything so snipey as take a blade to his soft furnishings. You'll be saying next, it wasn't Marley what done that. It was that thieving little wench, Jenny whatever, up to her old tricks again. No. Get this into your brainy skull. It was the pure wrath of Marley Godwin that done what she'd done. Jenny whatever never had the nerve to torment blokes. Believe me. Marley might smile like someone that needs to be on the cinema screen, but in the pit of her stomach she's got a boiling hot temper. When that happens, don't try handing her no kitchen knife once you've flunged her out on the street, even though she ain't done nothing bad to you. Now that I put you straight, I will grant that Marley does have her poncing pride, which is annoying. But she will rightly say, it's worth being so stuck up. Don't you see? 
because having a big head means you can't never give in. That's the whole point. Even if Marley could dose herself to the eyeballs, which is only normal for a fun-loving girl, she would never have let herself go to the dogs like Jenny whatever did. Because the likes of me has got nothing to do with the likes of Jenny. All Jenny ever done was overdose, not Marley. Jenny would have hit the streets and died again. Not Marley. Marley don't even care about blokes no more. With a small fortune packed into her Louis Vuitton travel case and a laptop telling her where to go next, it never ever crossed her mind that she needs to have relations to survive. No, the plan was much simpler. Get back with her twin sister and live happily ever after. What scientists will tell you is there is nothing better than having more cash than you can count. Normally, I don't count past ten. It's boring. Not so when I'm counting cash. There's hardly a dull moment then. After I left Bloomsbury behind, I could cheerfully count up to 1,850 before I got too knackered and needed to drink something. Here's what for. In those days, I would have said science was all wrong about this. I would have said planning to live happily ever after is miles better than having more cash than you can count. For the next months, I stayed in every hotel I could do a runner from. This meant I had spare sums to pay for good meals and fine toiletries. I bought a summer frock, a frayed jean jacket, and sunglasses what stretched round my face so no one could see what I was seeing. When all the funds were spent, I sold my fancy travel case down a back street pub. I was sleeping rough again, because I run out of places I could do runners from. If you seen me baking outside Brixton Tube, it was due to the fact that the latest pics on my laptop shone Scarly and her chums near to buildings I knew was in that neck of the woods. It is also a fact that once you end up in the kingdom of heaven, all the worldly goods in the world won't pay the bills there. Not so in the land of the living, because if you doss in deepest Brixton, there is only one thing you need, and that is all the worldly goods you can lay your hands on. I was down to my laptop and its charger. Except the clothes I was wearing and my mashed-up pride, there weren't hardly nothing left. Each day I messaged my sister on every free Wi-Fi I could find. All that time, she didn't even notice me, not once. You can imagine, I was good and ready to give our Lord and Maker another earful of my mind. Only... Before I could open my big mouth, I got mugged. The scum of the earth, what robbed my laptop and the charger, didn't even have to work at it. I hated handing over the last worldly goods I owns, but this bloke was tooled up. He was going to have my bits and pieces whether I lived or not, and he told me so. It was after this last straw, I said to myself, overdosing on crack and dying again might not be such a bad thing. I didn't know then that chemicals couldn't get me stoned no more. 
I seen the types of blokes I could do business with. They were standing near walls, pretending to be on mobiles. These blokes had to get to know you first before you could start scoring on credit. So I robbed a foreign student to fund my next overdose. Don't tell no one. If you do, I will deny it and say you told me you was a pedo. I never did like robbing. For one thing, the legal penance is too steep. The trouble is, in that neck of town, they are too savvy in shops for a girl to go about lifting things whenever she likes. They got too many cameras and blokes on steroids standing by doing security. Foreign students, on the other hand, strolling in parks, listening to headphones, is a whole nother matter. I found one sitting on a bench. He didn't speak no English, but that didn't make no odds, because I ain't no ignorant racist. All I did was pretend there was a knife in my jacket. He handed over his cash and his phone, no problemo. It was all fine and normal. I went away with nearly a tenner in coins and a mobile with credit on. My new foreign mate would have handed over the chain round his neck, only I told him he could keep that. I might have had it, but I was keen to get back to the tube station and see about my drugs. At the walls where scummy blokes lurk, there was one I thought I could do business with. He had piercings and tattoos all the way up his neck. This is always a good sign. I was about to catch his eye when the mobile I just nicked pinged for no reason I could gather. The tattoo bloke was staring now. He could see business coming his way. But he didn't get none. I swerved off. I took a minute to check my new phone. That's when the next miracle happened. I do hope you believe in miracles, because I am living proof that there is a high and mighty one making up the rules as he goes along. Do you know what? Scientists need to pay attention to this. If they think they got it all sewed up, they got another think coming along. I was in my darkest moments. All I wanted then was to score and check out. This was the best relief I ever known. All that could bring me back from such miseries was a miracle. And that's what happened. I will grant. There weren't no thunders, nor lightnings, nor anything like that. No angels popping out of the sweet blue sky above. But when I checked my new phone, I didn't even own 20 minutes before. There was the one screen I'd been waiting to see all those lonely months, telling me at last I could be Scarly's friend. Oh, no, no, no. There was on the screen I'd been waiting to see all those lonely months, too. There it was. Ah, there was the one screen. Charlotte made plans to meet with her sister, but she didn't tell anyone about it. 
Other than the brief exchange she'd had with Louise on New Year's Day 2017, there was no indication that she knew anything of Molly's existence, when we know very well that she must have. Molly would provide her own account of that first meeting, which happened at a church in Cambridge. It was the letter you first noticed that the person she referred to as the Beanstalk might be Julius Haft. By contacting the vicar there, I was able to establish that the sisters met for the first time on the 7th of January, 2017. Just at the mention of the word twins, the vicar remembered the incident. It had made an impression on him. Louise knew nothing about this meeting. It wasn't until later in February that year that she would find out about the woman who had surfaced without anybody knowing who she was. You wondered about Jack Godwin and his wife and why they wouldn't speak with me. It was mainly Jack. The first time I rang, it was Jack who picked up. When he heard what I wanted, he made it clear that he had no intention of discussing his nieces with anyone. He hung up before I could ask why. A few days later, I tried again. I spoke briefly with Agnes this time. She was pleasant, and I thought she might be willing to talk. I think her husband must have been within earshot. What he said to his wife was unintelligible, but Agnes suddenly told me she had to go, and the line went dead. As vivid as Marley's ninth letter turned out to be, detailing her version of events. It felt important to understand how the wider Godwin family reacted to her appearance on the scene. Their refusal to communicate seemed to be a dead end. It was pure luck that Jack's son, Ralph, decided to break ranks. He had his own motives for wishing to discuss the case. He was enraged by his father's severity, I think. It was apparent to the rest of the family that Jack wasn't able to countenance any kind of prying into Charlotte's affairs. Ralph told me that he disapproved of the underhanded way his father had set about prohibiting those closest to him from speaking more openly about what had happened. Behind the scenes, what was apparent was that a rift had opened up. Jack had put the issue on an emotional footing. Going on the record about Charlotte, he told his family, undermined him. It was imperative that the story should be kept from public view. Any dissension was intolerable and would cause him to fly into a temper. In what turned out to be the first of many telephone conversations, Ralph introduced me to a fresh perspective. He told me he grew up knowing Charlotte as the girl whose parents had died. When she first arrived in their home as an orphan, he was five. His parents treated her with a reverence he didn't understand. Straight away, he and his sister were encouraged and even cajoled into regarding Charlotte as an older sibling. You can imagine the upheaval. The age differences between the children was in itself a power struggle. Ralph was four years younger than Charlotte. His sister, Amelia, was six years younger. It seems that Charlotte took Amelia under her wing. This willingness to interact with the youngest in the family was a relief to Ralph's parents. 
As far as Ralph was concerned, though, it was another reason to be irritated. For years, he was convinced that Charlotte was only ever pretending to be protective of his sister, and doing it purely to spite him. He regrets thinking it now, but for the longest time he held the belief that Charlotte was deliberately using the death of her parents to gain advantages. In short, I suppose what I'm saying is the special status enjoyed by Charlotte was promoted by Jack and Agnes. It set her apart, and it jarred. The rule was that if Charlotte wanted something, she must have it. To Ralph, this was unfair, but whenever he protested, he was ignored or hushed. Within a year of coming to live with her surrogate family, Charlotte announced that she didn't want to appear in any more photographs ever again. As we know, her wish was granted. For the rest of her childhood, and throughout most of her teenage years, nobody was allowed to take a single picture of Charlotte. There was no such luxury for Ralph or Amelia. Ralph recalled having to pose and appear happy whenever his parents happened to have a camera to hand. Emilia took on the role of go-between. This was focused on easing the tensions that arose between Ralph and Charlotte. It became part of Emilia's nature to want to smooth things over, so much so that from early on Charlotte started calling her the Ameliorator. The nickname is no longer used, of course. But as an adult, Ralph's sister would remain committed to ensuring that Charlotte's reputation didn't suffer. She sided with their father in this. It became part of the family rift. When Ralph told her that he was on speaking terms with me, she became furious. It was as if the old hostilities and divisions had never gone away. While they'd been under the same roof, Ralph and Charlotte were at each other's throats. He admitted to being jealous of her. He's more phlegmatic now, and joked that the improvement in his outlook might be because of his passion for the English game of rugby. Perhaps it taught him to leave the rough-and-tumble behind on the playing field, he speculated. By the time he was going to university, he rarely thought about Charlotte anymore. He saw her occasionally at family get-togethers. As the years went by, Charlotte got more unpredictable and unreliable. In the run-up to Christmas 2015, she promised to celebrate with the rest of the family, but she didn't make an appearance and never provided an explanation. Ralph didn't see Charlotte for nearly two years after that. He was in his final term, studying for a degree in economics when they met again. Because he planned to live in London after he graduated, he visited the city in October 2016. He stayed with friends in Fulham. Out of a sense of duty, he texted Charlotte to tell her he was around if she wanted to meet. He didn't expect a reply. Charlotte's contact with the family had been reduced to a trickle. It had taken the form of an occasional text exchange, usually with Amelia. Even Amelia hadn't heard from her in many months. All anyone could be sure of by that time was that Charlotte had lost her way. When she actually replied to Ralph's text, he wasn't sure what to do. 
She suggested they meet at a pub. He contacted the rest of his family right away. The reaction was astonishment mixed with wariness. I know exactly how he must have felt as he made his way to Brixton for the rendezvous. The build-up to our own meeting produced something similar in me. It certainly kept me awake with worry. Compared to Ralph's reunion, I suppose I could say that at least we'd spoken on the phone every so often. Ralph had no idea what to expect. That was the thing about Charlotte, he told me. You never knew what you were getting. But then, who could have anticipated the bombshells that would come out of our meeting? She sailed into the pub half an hour late. She behaved as if there were no hurdles to overcome. She couldn't have been more gracious or friendly and quickly won her cousin over. After a few pints, Ralph lowered his guard enough to mention how beautiful she looked. His compliment was taken in the best possible light. Charlotte returned it instantly, telling him how grown up he was. She told him how much she loved his beard. Ralph only then found out that Charlotte had bought and sold a flat in Pimlico. She told him she was living with her lover in Brixton. He was under the impression that her lover was another poet called Louise. You can see why Charlotte might have wanted to breeze over the truth of what really happened. She told Ralph she and Louise had been perfectly happy living together, but the time had come to move on. It was never good having two poets under one roof, she claimed. She told him she'd decided to return to Cambridge. She'd already made an offer on a house there. These surprises came one after the other, but they were delivered in such a natural and ebullient way that Ralph felt able to accept them without query. Even if he wondered about the context to any of them, he never got the opportunity to ask questions. They went to an Indian restaurant, then back to the flat in Fulham, where he was staying with friends. They drank heavily and happily. They enjoyed each other's company, as if that's how things had always been between them. Ralph's friends, too, were besotted by Charlotte's style and charm. They stayed up with her all night, drinking vodka shots. It was only after the others had gone to bed that the conversation grew more intense. Charlotte started off by saying it wasn't easy for her to be emotionally open. She'd never liked others knowing too much about her. She was trying to remedy this now, she said. They held hands and went on to have a long and rambling discussion about the nature of friendship. Charlotte's unusual outpouring ended with a mutually held regret that they hadn't been able to talk like this when they were growing up. By dawn they were the best of friends. Before she left, she told Ralph she had a secret, but she would only share it with him if he promised not to tell anyone else. She made him swear to this. Once he'd given his reluctant assurances, she told him she'd been receiving messages on Facebook from a woman called Marley, who seemed desperate to be friends. She'd been ignoring it, thinking it was a prank. There was a strange photograph of Marley attached to all the messages, 
It was a head and shoulders picture done in a photo booth somewhere. What was strange about it was that it could have been a photo of Charlotte. She assumed it had been faked in some way, but the mystery had recently deepened. This Molly person had begun to attach other photographs to her Facebook requests. All of them were taken in public places, mostly around Brixton, and they were all dated late 2016. In them, the woman was posing with people Charlotte didn't know at all. It didn't seem possible, but it had to be genuine, she said. This person was completely identical to her. No one, and certainly not Ralph, ever suspected that Charlotte had a sibling, let alone a twin. Although keeping his promise was going to be challenging, Ralph remained true to his word. He went back to university and said nothing to anyone. He saw Charlotte again just a few months later over the Christmas break. As a rule, the Godwins celebrated Christmas at their home in Hungerford. Charlotte came along and was in such excellent form, it probably seemed churlish to mention her depressive episodes or the years that had gone by when she'd never been in touch. On Boxing Day, they gathered at her new home in Cambridge. Charlotte had ordered roast duck, sprouts, and crispy turnips from a local restaurant. She had a case of fine claret to offer her guests. She loved the word claret and said it frequently rather than wine or Bordeaux. Throughout that week, Ralph was only able to corner his cousin once for long enough to ask about the latest on Molly. But Charlotte just shook her head. She didn't want to speak about it. She whispered that she planned to meet her sister very soon. Before she turned to go, she put her finger to her lips and winked. <laughs>